Welcome to Pod Bless Canada, the Macdonald Laurie Institute's premier public policy podcast. My name is Brett Byers, and I'm joined today by Monk Senior Fellow Sean Spear, who's also our domestic program lead. Sean, how are you today? Brett, I'm doing well. Thanks, uh, thanks for having me on the podcast again. Oh, always a pleasure to have you on. Uh, today, I thought we would talk a little bit about the, the economy, the state of the economy, future of the economy, and, and what changes we've seen over the past little while. As well, leading into an election, I thought it would be a, a good chance to chat about what, what does the economy look like before October? What, what should Canadians be responding to or thinking about as they cast their ballots in October? Well, it seems like a, a good time to come together on, on this particular topic. We've, we have a series of economic-related uh, items uh, at the top of the headlines these days, from uh, President Trump's uh, ongoing tariff war with China to a large positive employment bounce last month. Uh, to, I think, real questions about Ottawa's fiscal plans uh, as the current year comes to an end. So for all those reasons, it seems like a great time to get together and try to help our listeners think through uh, the economy and, and how it may shape uh, the upcoming election campaign. Yeah, absolutely. And I wanted to actually pick up one point that you were just mentioning there, which is the, the surprisingly positive job numbers that Canada has experienced. Uh, most recent numbers say that Canada gained over 100,000 jobs, most of which are private sector, most of which were full-time uh, over the last uh, period in which the numbers came out. Um, this is also one of the most significant jumps in Canadian history in terms of uh, job growth numbers. Canada is at what appears to be a 40-year low in terms of unemployment numbers. Uh, the Trudeau Liberals are taking credit for it, saying that their strategy has been successful, that over a million jobs have been gained over the, the past few years of their tenure. Uh, and what do you what do you make of this? Uh, first of all, do you think that the the federal government can take responsibility for the job growth? And secondly, what does this job growth, this surprising job growth, mean for the economy at large? Well, let me try to respond in a few ways. I think first of all, uh, all Canadians should be happy and pleased that uh, that we've experienced uh, sustained employment growth over the past several months irrespective of the causes or the, the relative role of one policy or another, the fact that we've seen sustained employment growth in virtually all parts of the country, uh, Alberta probably being the one major exception, I think that's something that uh, should hearten all Canadians. To your second question, or the second part of your question about the Trudeau government's role in, in contributing to the employment growth, I think these types of things notwithstanding uh, political pronouncements, are difficult to discern. At the same time, Mr. Trudeau and his government are taking credit for the job gains we have center-right parties at the provincial level, right. similarly taking credit, uh, oftentimes pointing to precisely the opposite policy sources. And so uh, setting aside the, the relative role of one government versus another, or one policy versus the other, uh, I think what the sustained period of employment growth tells us is that uh, Canada is uh, Canada's economy is probably near the peak of the business cycle. And the reason that's important is as we think about the right economic policy for the country, we need to be sensitive to the fact that at some point the economy will start to uh, slow down. We may even find ourselves in a recession. We've seen slowing economic growth uh, now for a couple of quarters and re downward revisions, both in the federal budget and the Bank of Canada and, and other places. And so one thing I think we need to be cognizant of from a policy point of view is, are we, are we prepared for 
the uh, effects of, of, a, of another downturn. And I, I think that's something that the McDonald Law Institute, uh, including me, have been raising some concerns about. We have a federal government that is running deficits uh, at uh, the time when the economy is performing relatively well. Um, what, what happens when the economy worsens and the, the risk that the deficit could grow significantly in, in, in the face of a, of a shrinking economy is, is something I think that Mr. Morneau and the government need to be cognizant of. Just one final point. I don't purport to be a statistical expert, um, but the extraordinary jump, one that I think a net creation of north of 105,000 right. jobs, yeah. uh, I think shows some volatility in Statistics Canada's labor force survey. It's not to, it's not to be a conspiracy theorist. I have no, I have no view, view that, uh, that the numbers have been manipulated for political ends, none of that sort of thing. Um, but I do think there's probably a case that uh, um, going forward, Statistics Canada continues to refine uh, its methodologies um, to ensure that uh, the labor force survey is giving us, is kind of pushing out uh, the, the, the noise in the numbers and giving us a, uh, a, a good sense of Canada's labor um, labor market performance. Right. And I, th- I think that's an interesting point that the, the broader performance of the labor market might not be easy to understand with this. Um, and in fact, the, the broader performance of the economy also is not necessarily reflected just by job numbers. As you've mentioned, we've been seeing a period of sustained uh, job growth uh, that has looked very positive. Unemployment is incredibly low, and we've even had surprises, which, whether attributable to noise or not, the trend looks very positive. Uh, but at the same time, we've seen wage stagnation throughout the country, uh, even even when we've had provinces that have you know raised their minimum wages and whatnot for the express purpose of of raising uh, average wages. Uh, we, we've seen uh, wage stagnation, and we've seen slow economic growth uh, throughout the country. So how do how do we how do we square this circle? Mm. How is it at the same time we're experiencing some of the best employment numbers seemingly in a very very long time, certainly longer than I've been alive, <laughs> while at the same time we're experiencing what appears to be a much less dynamic economy, uh, one that is causing concerns with people about uh, their mobility and their their ability to get ahead and whatnot. How, so um, from your point of view. How do we reconcile the, the, the seemingly stark difference between these two narratives? Well, that's a great question. Uh, and I think it's important that we try to conceptualize these issues without our, our perspective being shaped by partisanship mm-hmm. or ideology or uh, other um, perspectives that people bring to bear on how they, they think about the economy and they think about Canada's performance. I, I think I should start by by emphasizing it is hard to be negative about an economy that has had the sustained employment growth that we've seen. I think irrespective of what one thinks of Mr. Trudeau's government or Mr. Ford's government or other governments across the country, we ought to universally agree that it's positive when, uh, when the economy is producing mm-hmm. um, large numbers of jobs. On the question of uh, trying to reconcile different interpretations of the state of Canada's economy. I think there's a couple of things at play. The first is one of the reasons we've, I think, experienced such relatively positive employment uh, numbers over the past several months is in part a reflection of a tight labor market. That's being driven by factors that we have anticipated for some time, including including aging demographics, Mm -hmm. including 
um, labor scarcity in some parts of the country or in some particular sectors like the skilled trades. And so uh, I think the trend of a tight labor market is um, something that is going to be with us for some time because of these big transformations in our economy. The, the, the second thing I would say in response to this question of reconciling these different perspectives or interpretations of the state of the economy is something that we've tried to do um, here at the McDonald Laurier Institute, and that is separate out the performance of a small number of outliers across the country. And I'm thinking in particular of our major urban centers like uh, Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver. There have been times in the past few years, uh, Brett, where they've been responsible for almost all net new job creation in the country. Uh, These are our most dynamic economies. They are um, home to the most economic opportunity. They're home oftentimes to the highest income levels. Uh, And so I think one of the reasons we see a bifurcation in in how people perceive the economy, it, it, it is as much, I think, about the economics of geography as it is uh, about anything else. And I think one thing that we've been trying to do here at the Institute is to think about what is an economic agenda that steers into this question of the economics of geography. Uh, I mentioned earlier um, that just this past, past month, I was in Washington for a conference at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, and one of the sessions I attended, probably the one that was most interesting, was about the new Opportunity Zones framework that Mm. was embedded in the tax cut bill last year. Uh, The tax cut bill, most of the attention paid to it uh, has been on the changes to uh, corporate taxation. I think there's been some debate about things like the state and local tax uh, uh, deduction or um, changes to mortgage interest deductibility. I would just say for listeners, without going into too much detail For those interested in policy innovation, policy creativity, with a particular focus to um, trying to catalyze economic activity and opportunity in distressed communities, I would encourage people to take a look at the Opportunity Zones framework. I think it's an interesting, relatively neutral policy designed to try to unlock capital and, and have it put to use in distressed communities across the United States. And it's something I hope that uh, over the coming months, the McDonald Law Institute can carry out some analysis about, um, try to understand um, the strengths and weaknesses of the model and if and where uh, it may have applicability in the Canadian context. Because uh, just in sum, I, I think it's likely that we're going to continue to see this bifurcated view about Canada's economic performance driven principally by the economics of geography. And I think it behooves um, policymakers and those of us uh, a couple of steps removed from policymaking to ensure that we're thinking ambitiously, thinking creatively uh, about the right policy framework to ensure that economic growth is inclusive in Canada, not just inclusive according to different economic or income quintiles, Mm -hmm. but inclusive uh, across regions, across communities, and so on. So uh, interesting, this this notion of opportunity zones, and I don't want to uh, belabor it or bore our listeners, but uh, to dig into it a little bit, how does this compare with with this notion of superclusters that the Trudeau government has presented. So uh, for those who might not know, uh, one of the Trudeau government's uh, primary approaches to infrastructure investment has been to invest in communities for specific economic uh, interests. So 
whether or not it's um, a bioprotein investment in Saskatchewan where there's already an industry that exists there, but they're looking to expand it, or a high-tech investment in a high-tech community like Waterloo already. Um, the notion is to make these, these clusters or hubs of innovation and economic growth principally driven by government support and private contribution. So um, how, how does this compare, though, with the notion of uh, opportunity zones, which, by my understanding, are more specifically designed to equalize, you know, the, the sort of delivery of, of capital and scarce resources? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. I think the one commonality, broadly speaking, to the Trudeau government superclusters initiative and the Opportunity Zones framework that's being advanced in the United States is that they are both what uh, listeners may be familiar with the term place-based strategies. That is to say, for a long time, Brett, I think the response to uh, those in distressed communities, the principal policy response was labor mobility. That is um, that people ought to respond to labor market signals and relocate from places where there were minimal uh, employment opportunities to parts of the country where there were more. And I think one of the takeaways from the 2016 election campaign is many of us in the policy world, I think, have had to revisit some of those assumptions. Yes, labor mobility will be the solution for um, some people, even a lot, but there will be those who remain in communities that face narrowing uh, economic opportunity. I think the, the question for policymakers is, how can we catalyze economic opportunity, investment, employment with minimal distortion. Uh, this is the idea of place-based uh, economic strategies. And as I say, I think the Superclusters Initiative is, is I think, partly shaped um, by this, this impulse. The big difference, I think, and I'll, I'll try to be as brief and non-technocratic as I can, because while the Opportunity Zones conceptually is intriguing, by implementation or design, it's quite complicated. Mm -hmm. um, but there are, in effect, uh, two or three key elements. Uh, the first is the federal legislation set out some clear economic metrics or thresholds uh, related to employment levels, income, investment, and so on. And, and then it said to state-level governments, uh, they were able to identify parts of their respective states that fell below these thresholds and in turn could be identified and recognized as opportunity zones. So uh, the framework was established by the federal government, but responsibility for um, selecting the various opportunity zones was decentralized to the state level governments. Ultimately, there are 8,700 opportunity zones across America. And just for listeners, I'm not talking about cities. These would be relatively small geographical spaces. Think of neighborhoods or blocks. Mm. So the town of Erie, Pennsylvania, for instance, has eight or nine opportunity zones within it. And then to try to catalyze investment into these stressed communities, um, the federal framework set out three uh, key policy inducements. The first is uh, those who currently uh, have a capital gain in an investment that they're currently holding if they unlock that investment, if they unlock the capital gain and they invest those proceeds into an opportunity zone, they get a deferral on, on the taxation of the initial capital gain for 10 years. So that's mm -hmm. the first inducement. The second is uh, those who keep their investment in an opportunity zone for 10 years um, are able to receive a, a reduction in the tax owing on the, on the capital gain on the initial investment, if you follow me. The third inducement is uh, any capital gain that uh, accrued in the opportunity zone itself is fully tax exempt. 
And so the hope is the, the combination of these three inducements will be able to take capital that's sitting locked in um, to various types of uh, investments and cause those investors to direct that capital to communities that need it. And what's extraordinary is in the short period of time that the Opportunity Zones framework has been in place, uh, approximately 100 Opportunity Zones for funds have spread it up. So retail investors like you and I mm -hmm. um, can put our capital into an Opportunity Zone fund to then be uh, uh, targeted for, to one of these 8,700 Opportunity Zones. And what's really cool, Brett, is that in some cases, the Opportunity Zones funds are sector specific. So a fund may be uh, focused on investing in real estate in an opportunity zone or in business incubation, for instance. In other cases, they're uh, geographically focused. So an opportunity zone fund has been stood up to focus on the state of Pennsylvania, opportunity zones in the state of Pennsylvania, for instance. And some have some function as uh, typical investment funds. They're driven by a rate of return. Others have a social component mm -hmm. um, to their investment strategy. But what's interesting about it is uh, many of us have been grappling for some time with this question about how do we um, try to catalyze economic opportunity in distressed communities? It's something we've talked a great deal about here at the McDonald Laurie Institute. And as I say, well, I'm suspending judgment for now. On the face of it, the Opportunity Zone model looks like something that Canadian policymakers ought to explore. Uh, and as I said earlier, something hopefully over the coming months, the McDonald Laurie Institute can um, play a leading role in, in familiarizing Canadians with the model and making some judgments about its utility and possible application in the Canadian in the Canadian uh, context. Well, that's certainly certainly an economic story out of the states that we should be keeping our eyes on. There and the subject of bipartisanship, by the way. Even though it's a fairly hands-off approach in terms of the state sets up the system and it's predominantly rewarding those who already possess capital to invest their capital in certain ways. Even though that is the model and it would predominantly see approval and green lights from those on the right, you're saying that it, it's also because of its goal of equalizing the playing field a little bit, it's also seeing support from those on the left. The, the co-sponsors of the bill that ultimately, uh, but the origins of the Opportunity Zone model that eventually was um, became part of the tax reduction bill were Tim Scott, a, a Republican senator from South Carolina, mm -hmm. and Cory Booker. Uh, a Democratic senator from, from the state of New Jersey. so Which doesn't get much more different, ideologically speaking. <laughs> exactly. But I think it's, it, it's so important. Past experiments with place-based strategies, I think, have um, largely failed. If you think about it this way, the regional development agencies like the Atlantic Canada Opportunities Agency or Western Economic Diversification or FedNOR yes. um, in Northern Ontario, where I'm from, are, are instruments of a place-based strategy and the fact that uh, they've not been very successful at catalyzing economic activity in their respective regions is a sign that the current model isn't working. And as I said, I think the Opportunity Zone framework, while it's early days, at, on the face of it, looks uh, like a framework that uh, one, can seemingly secure bipartisan interest or support, and two, hopefully make progress, I think, on an issue that is uh, highly important uh, to Canadians from coast to coast. It's fascinating what they're coming up with south of the border. Um, another thing that is quite interesting to a lot of Canadians, though, which has to do with our American friends, is their approach to the tariff standoff that we're seeing. Good segue. Yeah, <laughs> really tried to loop that one in. <laughs> but uh, uh, listeners will probably know that the United States and China are currently engaged in a trade standoff, which has been a direct result of U.S. President Trump's belief 
that the the Chinese government is manipulating its currency, it's manipulating the economy, violating WTO rules, and is effectively just not a good trade partner for the United States. Their trade deficit is another thing that the president has railed about. So uh, in this context, both sides have increased tariffs on one another on all sorts of goods. So first of all, from an economic perspective, oftentimes tariffs are seen as little more than an indirect tax on consumers, where an American tariff on a Chinese product will increase the cost of that Chinese product, which will then increase the cost on consumers or make consumers look towards products that are similarly priced from other sources. So regardless, though, the consumer is paying more than they otherwise might have. First of all, I I do want your thoughts on whether or not that's correct. And I also want uh, your perspective on whether or not this, this trade dispute has greater economic implications beyond just governments taking resources from what would otherwise be in the private sector? Does this have any sort of risk of snowballing or uh, contributing to recession or anything like that? Well, let me try to answer that as as succinctly as I can. I think, first of all, the biggest challenge for us as outside observers is Mr. Trump has given us little reason in the past um, to trust his discipline and capacity to advance strategic interests. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I think all of us are trying to stand back and understand, is this motivated by a clear strategy or is this a reflection of the president's personal impulsiveness? And right now, I'm just not in a position to, to speculate about whether the president fully understands the strategic interests here at play, the strategic issues at play, and whether he has the uh, resolve, the capacity, the discipline to see this process through in a strategic way. And I'll, I'll come back to that, I think, in, in response to your second question, if that's okay. Sure. Uh, on your first question, I don't think there's any doubt that tariffs can impose costs on uh, domestic consumers. There's been plenty of uh, scholarship on the subject in general, and even, I think, in recent weeks on um, the particular experience uh, between the United States and China over the past several months. And and so I think it will behoove the president to make the case for why those short-term costs are worth it. Which I think leads me to the to the second question and the point I made earlier about um, the, the the broader strategic question here. I I think notwithstanding uh, President Trump's clumsiness and all of the other weaknesses that we've come to associate him with, I think he is um, broadly speaking onto something here. That successive American administrations have accepted the terms of the economic relationship between China and the United States, and in so doing, in effect, um, caused all of us to accept the terms of our bilateral relationship with China. And I think what President Trump is, is said and done here is the signal that those terms are unsatisfactory to the United States, in large part due to the reasons you described earlier, the uh, manipulation of currency, state-centric investment decision-making, the indiscernible Um, distinction between the Chinese state or the Chinese Communist Party and some of the uh, state-owned enterprises, to say nothing of questions of intellectual property theft Mm -hmm. and corporate espionage and so on. And so he is, in effect, saying uh, we need to reset the terms of our economic relationship. Uh, I think the work that we've done at the McDonald-Laurie Institute 
has, uh, broadly speaking, pointed in the same direction. And so, well, I think we need to be cognizant of the short-term economic costs of some of the choices the president's made and recognize the risk that uh, he makes poor decisions in this context. I think I would argue on balance that this initiative, at least theoretically, is worth it, that it is important that we make adjustments to the nature of economic relationship with China, including insisting upon China operating by same market norms um, that Western countries do. One of the extraordinary things about this, Brett, is that in 2000, when China ascended to the World uh, Trade Organization, it was characterized as a non-market economy, and it's been lobbying Canada and others in the intervening time um, that we start to recognize it as a, as a market economy. And there's a whole host of international trade reasons why that's something that China has sought. And I think what um, Mr. Trump is saying here in his own Trumpian way is that you're not a market economy. And until you're prepared to start to function like a market economy, we are going to treat you differently. And uh, Tyler Cowen, who we've had on the, on the podcast yeah. before, had a column in Bloomberg this week in which he argues that the risks of this tariff war to China are much greater than much of the commentariat is prepared to admit. And that, uh, as I said earlier, there is a, a compelling theoretical case for trying to adjust our economic relationship. And no doubt this will be something that the McDonald Orient Institute uh, continues to follow closely. Yeah, and due to some of the points you raised, intellectual property theft, we had Richard Owens appearing at a panel discussion a few months back, arguing that China's systematic state-sponsored engagement in intellectual property theft represents the largest transfer of wealth in human history. Hmm. That, that in and of itself should be cause for concern. But other work that we've done more recently, including a report we released in March by Duanji Chen, looked at how China has dealt with its trade partners, countries that have established free trade relationships with China or free trade agreements, and the negative repercussions that they have found. So with this in mind, this, this notion that China is objectively not a wholesome player on the global economic scene, that they are, they are engaging in practices that are quite disaligned with what are, are within the Western interests. With that in mind, should Canada be joining in the United States in this? I mean, we've got our own tensions with China, most notably following the arrest of Meng Wanzhou, China's response to that by arresting several Canadians and increasing their own sort of tariff fight against us, particularly on canola, pork, and other products. Should, should we be reciprocating? Should we be working closely with our American allies? Or should we still be taking a back seat on this just based on Canada's position as a middle power? Let me try to answer that um, with two points. First, uh, I think it is unconscionable that the Trump administration has not been more supportive of Canada yes. in the context of this extradition case. I saw uh, this week, uh, I think, to my knowledge, the first time uh, an advisor to the president, John Bolton, tweet about uh, the American administration's support for Canada, um, for the fact that we've honored our extradition treaty with the United States, that we've uh, upheld the rule of law in this particular case, but it seems to me it's too little too late on the part of the American administration. I think it, it, it's a sign of Mr. Trump's personal weaknesses as commander-in-chief, his failure to recognize the importance of its, uh, America's traditional alliances, uh, his failure to recognize the importance of standing up with other liberal democracies, 
not just vis-a-vis China, but more generally. And, and so I, I would be remiss if I didn't make that point first. Of course. Uh, secondly, I, I do think this is an area where Canadian and American interests align. You mentioned Richard Owen's work on intellectual property theft by China of, uh, from Canadian firms. So we're hardly immune to the same challenges that America has faced in its bilateral economic relationship with, with China. And in fact, it would be even harder for us to try to advance reform uh, on, on our own because of the obvious asymmetry with China. So here's a, here's a case, it seems to me, where not because we're trying to placate the administration or where we're trying to curry favor with the American uh, administration. Here's a, here's a clear case, it seems to me, where our uh, um, interests align with the Trump administration's. And my advice to Prime Minister Trudeau, just as it would be to any Canadian prime minister, we ought to lean in, if and where possible, work with the administration to try to, as I said earlier, uh, rebalance um, our, our trade relationship with China, um, to push China for greater liberalization and uh, uh, a greater respect for the institutions and norms that the rest of us uh, abide by in the international economic arena. What Canada should do on China is certainly something that's going to be a long-term problem, not a short-term one. Um, obviously, the current tensions perhaps better reveal the character of the uh, PRC, but are not necessarily a, a radical departure from what they've always been. So seeing this in the long term, I think the final question I wanted to touch on is, uh, what, should, what should Canadians be focused on in the long term? If, uh, with their eyes towards the election, you know, we've, talked about, we've talked about a lot, whether it's foreign policy, um, opportunity zones, uh, the state of the labor market, uh, the state of the economy in general. With, with all of these things percolating and certainly informing how Canadians will see their ballot in October, what, uh, what do you think would be, from, from an economic point of view, what do you think will be defining the decisions of the people who go in there? I mean, obviously, political scandals aside and, and the natural jockeying that goes on, platforms, etc. If you were to just try to get into the mind of the average Canadian who's thinking about voting on economic terms, what do you think they would be having on their mind come October? Well, let me try to answer it this way, what I think they ought to have on their mind. One thing that concerns me about our public discourse in Canada around economic issues, it's something that's concerned me for some time. And that is, I think we have succumbed to a degree of complacency about economic growth, about uh, questions of economic efficiency. And I should stop there and say for one minute before I proceed that what I'm about to say in no way diminishes um, the larger set of issues around the economics of geography we talked about earlier, the bifurcation in our labor market between those with post-secondary education and those who don't, questions around income inequality more generally. All of those are terribly important, and I think they're issues that here at the McDonald Institute we've um, thought and written a lot about. But we cannot let those issues cause us to lose sight uh, uh, on the big question about how do we grow the economic pie. Um, just after the budget, uh, National Post columnist uh, uh, Andrew Coyne had uh, a column that I thought was insightful. He said um, that for the past quarter century, Canada has experienced, by and large, uninterrupted economic growth. And one of the consequences of that is that Canadian policymakers and the Canadian public, I think, have come to take for granted 
that a growing economy is the natural order of things. Uh, and we've seen governments of virtually every stripe impose uh, new costs on the economy in the form of taxation or regulation or other uh, forms of mandates. And because the economic growth hasn't buckled under the weight of those, uh, of those strains, you get the sense that policymakers assume that uh, there's nothing um, <laughs> that can stop the, uh, the natural tendency of the economy to grow. And I think that's a risky proposition. Yes, questions around equity, which is the economic language for fairness, are important. Um, but I think it, it really behooves policymakers across the spectrum um, not just to think about how we split up the economic pie, that we are focused on growing the economic pie. Um, not only is that critically important for uh, economic uh, questions like uh, employment or wage growth or investment in the economy, I also think uh, a, a growing economy is essential to how people feel about their own lives, how they feel about uh, their communities, how they feel about the country. We're going through a bit of a period of tension in our country between regions, between sectors, um, between different groups of people. And it seems to me an economy growing at 3% a year uh, in a sustained way would uh, naturally resolve a lot of those tensions. And so I think, well, Canadians will rightly um, be concerned about questions of fairness, questions about uh, economic disparity. I think one of the things I hope they challenge our policymakers, they challenge our political leaders um, to put forward compelling visions for a growing economy. This is something we talked to Tyler Cowen about uh, uh, late last year on this podcast and something that I think we can't afford to lose sight about. We're going to have a campaign where I'm afraid economic growth, which is in many ways the foundation of our society, of our, our life in Canada, uh, will be uh, more absent than it ought to be. And I think it, it, it ultimately incumbent upon Canadians uh, to call out the political class, to make sure that uh, economic growth is, is uh, near the center uh, of uh, the upcoming uh, campaign debate. Yeah, well, as you say, a, a, a pie that's growing at 3% has a little bit more to divide. So however we decide we want to divide it, it makes it a little bit easier if we've got more. Exactly. Uh, it's really foundational. And, and, you know, the McDonald-Laurie Institute thinks and writes about a range of issues, but all of them presuppose uh, a, a growing economy. And I think, um, I, I really do think, and this is something I've been personally grappling with for uh, the past several weeks, how do we ensure um, that, well, we don't take our eye off the ball of a range of issues of great importance, the climate, uh, indigenous issues, healthcare, and so on. How do we make sure um, that we can find uh, room for a similarly robust debate about the right way to ensure that Canada's economy uh, continues to grow and throw off the revenues and the opportunities and the employment that um, um, uh, how we think about success in Canada. Yeah. Well, Sean, as always, thank you so much for your, your insights. I think you've done, uh, you certainly done me and our listeners a, a great service today. So thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me again. 